Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. This is the uh, time that I have been working super hard on something new that I've created. And my motto, if you haven't already heard or seen this, is basically sitting in a sign up above my head in my new home office. It says, create the things you wish existed. I have lived my life, my adult life by that motto. And I could go through my entire lifetime of things that I've created from starting as a little kid and going through the neighborhood selling things that I made, really annoyed most of the neighbors, by the way, um, <laughs> to being an adult and having my first child be Elizabeth, a 29-week two-pound preemie, and finding that a lot of the information, advice, and counsel and programs that I was seeking for her just didn't exist or they didn't exist for her or for our family situation. So I went through and started a series of creating things that I needed. Started with a law firm that was totally dedicated to disability law, not some fraction of a bigger firm or a bigger estate planning department or a bigger litigation department, but a firm that just does this for our community, the disability community. That was 10 years ago. Our anniversary just passed 10 years in July. So, so exciting. And I'm so proud of what we've created here. Then I noticed that, you know, as a lawyer, I was spending a lot of my time just educating, educating. I, I volunteered and was asked so many times to speak. It had gotten to a point where through the years, I was starting to speak about 30 times a year, all for free, always, and to deliver information and resources and support to the public, to the disability community, talking on topics of which I have some expertise, guardianships and avoidance of guardianships, estate planning that have special needs trusts or special needs or disability issues involved, um, advocacy with public benefits agencies such as Medicaid or Social Security or other state agencies, transition from the school system to adulthood, and in essence, creating a life plan for a person with a disability and their caregivers, family, and circle of care. So as I'm noticing that this is really what people want from me, I, being the business person I am, first of all, have to think about a way to get paid for this. And because, you know, I have bills to pay too. And secondly, I really needed to think about how to reach more people and in a bigger way. Because not everybody needs a lawyer. In fact, you all were proving that to me by asking me for things that were not necessarily law related, but maybe tangentially law related. 
in addition, not everybody lives in Massachusetts. And, you know, a lot of the information and support is national or international. It's concepts. It's not the finite, you know, this regulation or that, you know, detailed general law. So as I'm thinking about how to make money at this, reach more people and deliver the things that people are asking for, hence creating what we wished existed, I started on a journey past the law firm of doing other things. Started with uh, writing a book about my journey with Elizabeth and my other daughter, Caroline, and our family. That went tremendously, Butterflies and Second Chances, a mom's memoir of love and loss. Then created, uh, after that, a podcast that you're listening to right now, (laughs) Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. And it's a disability podcast, not just special needs. I know we have some, you know, distinction there. Then after that, something I'd been thinking about for a long time was creating another company, another organization. And this one was going to do a couple of things. It was going to act as a fiduciary in many roles, whether it be a trustee of a trust or a guardian or an agent under a power of attorney, healthcare agent, guardian, conservator, many, many roles. And this would be stepping in to that circle of care and making sure that for people who don't have someone or who need an addition or a support for their circle of care, they can come to us. Again, don't need a lawyer, need someone in a different role. And started that two years ago, right before the pandemic started. So we got a little bit of a slow start, but it's going tremendously now called Special Needs Family Services, Inc. And within that Special Needs Family Services, Inc., there were a couple of other endeavors, including the new one that I want to talk to you about today. So we also created a Facebook group. It's free. It's called Circle of Care. It's all about creating the supports and the resources that you need, because we are our best supports. We, as family members, supporters, individuals, which we sometimes call self-advocates and allies to the disability community, we know what we need. We just need to get to the person who can tell us where to find that thing. Many of the support groups and other groups that I joined, and I'm a joiner, I've joined so many through the decades, were very focused on one thing or another. This group was meant to be all-inclusive, to bring everybody that I mentioned in those groups together, whether it's a, you know, not dependent on what type of disability we're talking about, whether you are a self-advocate or a caregiver, family member, an ally to the community, a professional that serves the community. We are open to everybody to bring together this disability community in a real way that will impact people's lives and create change. I'm a community builder. It's what I do. It's what I love. So 
The last thing that is just getting launched now that is really something that I am incredibly excited about and so proud of is yet another way to push forward some information, resources, and support in the non-legal realm. Again, my hourly rate's gotten very high. I'm in demand. I'm so grateful for that. But it's not just about me. It's about all of you. And trying to create a cohort of peers to support each other, it was my mission. But also finding a way with that cohort to deliver the information, advice, and counsel that people need, but in an affordable way. So through the pandemic, I started working on this and I created some courses that are online on demand. But along with the first one that I launched, I'm doing a peer coaching program for eight weeks. It's an hour a week with homework. The materials in the video course are included. They are not just the videos, which are 15 modules, but in addition, there's a workbook and a course book there. And there's like 200 pages of materials, something like that. It's an incredible resource pulling together decades of knowledge and other resources and supports and delivering it all at an affordable price. Yay. Yay us. So this program, the first one I'm launching is all about transition planning. We call it our transition planning masterclass. And it encompasses the elements of transition for both young adults who are transitioning from school to an adult life, but also other life transitions. The next generation of caregivers taking over a person who is making some dramatic changes, who may be a self-advocate, um, also running a cohort for professionals only who want to know more about these topics, Medicaid, Social Security, housing for people with disabilities, special needs trusts and ABLE accounts, guardianship and alternatives to guardianship, evaluations, person-centered planning, we have it all. As a professional, you need to know these things so that you can advise and support your clients and your customers in a holistic way. Therefore, we're going to create an army of consultants and advisors for the disability community to go to. Can you hear the enthusiasm? I'm so excited about this. The transition planning masterclass starts in these two different cohorts on September 14th, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern time for um, individuals, families, and caregivers, and 1 p.m. Eastern time for professionals. I am offering to anybody who is part of my listening audience here and share with anybody that you would like a special pricing code so that it can be even more affordable. 
We did our beta test cohort in July and early August, and it was fantastic. I got so much great feedback and made the program even better for everybody. In fact, they were the ones who had the idea to break it up into two cohorts because professionals have a certain um, way of looking at things and types of information and support that they're looking for versus individuals, family members, caregivers, and allies. I hope you all can, can join us. I hope this resonates with you. We will have some contact information in the show notes today. Now, moving on to my interview for today, somebody who has absolutely embraced this idea of creating what you wish existed is Kathleen Burns Kingsbury who is a wealth psychology expert. She hosts a podcast called Breaking Money Silence. And her book, Breaking Money Silence, How to Shatter Money Taboos and Talk More Openly About Finances so that we can all live a richer life is just a fantastic book. She hit so many of my... Um, fears. You know, I have a lot of fear about money. Many of us do, particularly she speaks to women, but it, this is for everybody. Um, she is one of the top internationally published authors and speakers on this money talk. And she has been um, on television, written for many publications, and her work's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, PBS NewsHour, Money Magazine, Today Money, Forbes, and CNBC. In addition, she's an adjunct faculty member of finance at Bentley University and Champlain College. She just has done it all. I can't speak more highly about how accessible she makes this conversation because I don't know if you all feel like I do, but the idea about our money, um, especially since I grew up without any, it just paralyzes me. And I often find myself making no decision or wrong decisions as opposed to embracing things. And it is so funny how different I am in my business life than I am in my home life. My home life and my money management and financial skills are really, um, they are really driven by my emotions as opposed to in my business life, the decisions that I'm making are very fact-based and data-based. And it's just, I can't even fathom why. There's such a difference in the way I approach things on a personal basis versus business. There's no sensible reason why that should be the case. But Kathleen breaks it down for me. And um, her publications are, they're prolific for one, but also just so easy to, to, um, digest and that's not the right word I'm trying to say they're they're just very approachable and she's approachable I loved our interview I hope you love it as much as I did please check out the show notes for all the ways to contact Kathleen we call her KBK 
and to, you know, get in touch with your feelings about money. It's so important, people. We really need to be on top of our wealth and financial situations, whether you have a little or a lot, doesn't matter. In fact, when you have less, it's even more important to be on top of everything. So please let me know, as always, if you like this interview, please share it, get it out there for people who need it. And I'm so grateful to KBK for coming on the show today. Thank you and hope you enjoy. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. Okay, today we have a fun yet difficult topic. Um, My guest is Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. I'm so glad you could be here. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you very much, Annette. I'm excited for our conversation today and to break money silence with you. Yes. So um, as I mentioned in my intro, Kathleen is an award-winning podcaster, award-winning author. She's got five books out and she talks about money. She wants us to talk about money. So we're going to talk money today. So Kathleen, as you know, this is a podcast focused on um, disability and both individuals who are impacted by disability, but also their caregivers, their families, and the institutions with, within which we have to live. So, you know, foremost on everybody's mind right now is inflation and the economy and the stock market. Um, you know, I thought maybe I'd just ask you kind of right off the bat, you know, how your whole thing is breaking money silence. How do you do that when we are so anxious about this topic? How, how do we do that? Well, it is interesting because when we are anxious or we're worried, like during the pandemic, we tend to actually talk about money more. So when our anxiety is high, sometimes we push ourselves outside our comfort zone and engage in those conversations. I'm not saying that it's easy, but that can be one way of actually reducing your anxiety to have conversations about it, to make plans about it. When it comes to inflation and when it comes to looking at the volatility in the stock market, you know, my area of expertise is behavioral finance. So it's, I just want to normalize if you're anxious, if you are worried, if you, you know, think, wow, this feels really out of my control, that all of those things are very normal, natural emotions And if you have either been working with a financial advisor and have a good financial plan and or know that you need to stay the course and maybe not look at the stock market every day and not read the paper about inflation, that that can help you manage the anxiety. And then, you know, breaking money silence is involves a little bit more, but it's a great time to break money silence because certainly it's on everybody's mind. I love that. So as anybody who's ever listened to this podcast knows, I'm a planner. I like a plan and I set goals. And the reason that I do that is because it reduces my anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I also know that I need to be flexible because sometimes those plans change and you need to make adjustments. In our life, as folks in the disability community, we seem to need to adjust a little bit more frequently. And we are dependent on, you know, some systems that support us. And when those systems are the government, and the government doesn't seem to be in good shape, that can be really scary. 
how does this relate to, you know, breaking money silence? Why is that so important? Well, I think in order to financially plan, in order to come up with goals, you often need to have at least a conversation with yourself about what is it that's important to me? What are the values I want to honor? How do I take care of the person in my life that might have this disability? Because certainly I don't need to tell anybody listening in that has great financial ramifications. And so the first conversation is really with yourself to get clear as to what are the thoughts and beliefs you have about money? What are the goals that you have? And then you reach out and start to have conversations with other people. My fear is if you're not talking about money and you're not engaging in these conversations, you are more likely to make a financial mistake that is greater than if you were learning from somebody or to experience shame after you make a financial mistake and not recover and learn from it. So, you know, if you look at the statistics out there, right? So you go 44% of Americans would rather talk about death, dying, politics, or religion. <laughs> I don't know if it's politics anymore, but maybe it's, it's more so. And then when you take out a slice, and I know a lot of your listeners might be women as well, 61% of women would rather talk about their own death than talk about money. So it is a great taboo topic. Wow. However, it, you know, as someone who plans, it's really important to learn from each other, to figure out who are the supports in your life you can talk about and uh, talk this about this with, whether it's your partner, whether it's someone like yourself with the expertise you have, or whether it's, you know, a financial advisor. Why does it impact women so differently? Why are women less likely to talk about money or even, you know, have that conversation with themselves? You know, it's fascinating. I've dedicated most of my career to trying to figure out the solution <laughs> to that problem. I think it's, and you're going to tell me in three yeah, words. And, I, and I'm going to do it on this podcast. <laughs> Stay tuned. So basically what I think has happened is a variety of things. So somewhat of a perfect storm. So there is the societal messages that many of us received growing up, whether they were yes. overt or whether they were something that was very subtle women shouldn't be profit motivated, you know, women shouldn't be too successful. Oh, it's a man's job to manage the money. So a lot of those messages, and you also look at history where women didn't really enter the workforce in a, in a big way until the 70s and 80s. So we've had less practice managing money, talking about money. And then you do the added kind of systematic problems that we have in terms of the gender wage gap and the investment gap. And it, it's kind of like this perfect storm. I think the beauty, though, for the women who are listening in is we are really good at taking care of other people. Oh, yes. So if we think about how can we talk more about money, manage money, plan uh, around our finances and we're doing this not only for ourselves, but we're role modeling to the other people in our lives. And ultimately, I want people to do it for themselves. But if right now you can't do it for yourself, think I'm doing it for my kids. I'm doing it for my sister. I'm doing it for the person I mentor, you know, someone that's at work, that's an emerging leader. If you need to start by role modeling it to other women, mm -hmm. go for it, because we need to do a better job of engaging in these conversations across the board. And certainly, if you have a special needs child, then there is uh, some complexity there as well. I love that. I loved what you said a minute ago about shame too, because so many of us have gotten into difficulty. You know, I 
So I wrote about my entire journey in my book and I went through a very difficult bankruptcy. I was about to lose my house. My daughter was in hospice and dying and the Mm. bank had no mercy. Um, And I, because I was about to go into foreclosure, I had to file for bankruptcy. It was humiliating as a professional to be Mm -hmm. in this situation, but the care was costing me so dearly that I just, I didn't have any choice, you know? Um, But I decided to write about it because I wanted people to know that this was not something that I chose. This was not a life path that I just Mm -hmm. said, well, I don't care. So this is, you know, whatever. Um, And you know, personally, I went through a chapter 13, because it was important to me to pay everybody back in a plan. But that had financial ramifications that nobody told me about. Um, So I, I think it's so important that we tell our stories, and that we talk about these things to each other, not just within our families, because we want to take that stigma away. There are going to be times in some of your lives when you know, you're not where you want to be financially through no fault of your own and some tough choices that you have to make, but you can come back. You know, I have a a home and I I do have credit again. I mean, it took a long time, but you can come back. It's not the end of the world. Well, and, and so there's a couple of things in there. One is when you talk about the shame there is so much shame associated with how we do this thing called money, right? I really feel like we live in a culture of money shame and it affects all generations. Often people will say to me, well, millennials or Gen Zs, they're all set. Well, yeah. I think they're doing better, but they're not all set. Because yeah. if you look at uh, Gen Xers and boomers typically have experienced, I think it's 74% of them, a, a regret or embarrassment around a money mistake. Wow. And it could be a small one or a large one. You look at millennials and over 80% actually hide their restaurant expenses from their financial advisors because they're shameful that they're spending so much money in a way that they think their advisor is not going to be happy about it. And you know, then you add on something like you're talking about where you have a money trauma. And, you know, in some ways, filing for bankruptcy was probably the financially wise choice to do, but you're left with what our society says about people who go bankrupt. It's very similar to what people think automatically about people who are wealthy. You know, it's really, we have to stop stereotyping because really good people can go through bankruptcies. And there can actually be, this is radical for some people listening in, really nice, wonderful people who are in the 1%. So what we need to start looking at is how do we learn from each other? How do we tell our money stories like you've done? Because our money history really informs us as to what we want to do differently going forward, what we want to do the same. And if you learn from that money history and you share it, the shame in our society goes down because we're as sick as our secrets. So if we stop having secrets, there'll be less shame. And we can teach each other and role model to each other. You know, I got into this industry because I had this shameful experience of getting ripped off from a contractor. And I really felt like, how could I get ripped off? I have all this financial training. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, he was a con artist. (laughs) He was good at it. And 
I discovered this whole field of well psychology. And I actually thank Steve, the contractor, wherever he is out there, because he disappeared <laughs> with all my money uh, for, uh, you know, helping me find this career that I've been at for 15 years now. That's interesting. I don't think I've gotten to the point where I can thank the bank yet for foreclosing on me, but <laughs> I'm glad that you have evolved past where I am. That's awesome. Well, so, dealing with a bank is a little bit different than dealing with my situation, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. also, I mean, I think, you know, we don't have to get to a place like where I got to, where I'm like, thanks, Steve. Uh, but we do have to get to a place where we go, okay, this was something that happened, but it, it just does not define me. And my sense is you are there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I keep thinking about like, gee, would I be berating myself if I, you know, tripped and broke my arm? No, same mistake, same, you know, same thing, you know, something that it, it just, it happened. It is what it is. I fixed it. You know, am I going to not go to the doctor and get my arm reset just because yeah. I'm ashamed or, you know, embarrassed that I tripped over the curb? No, of course not. I'm going to take care of my body. Yes. And I absolutely need to take care of my, my wealth and my, my financial health, I guess, if you will. So you talk a lot about um, how important it is for us to discuss finances within the family. And I want to ask you two things about that. First of all, how do you start that conversation with your partner or your loved one that you're sharing a life with? So, you know, ideally, you start that conversation when you get serious and you are thinking about getting married or moving in together. We all know for most of us, us including myself, that didn't happen. Right. The first thing I did was take my husband to the bank, open a joint banking account, and then control it for 15 years because mm -hmm. I knew he was no good with money, which is not the way to do it. No. Um, so, so what I encourage people to do is, is to start to talk about what I call your money talk mindset. So how you think and feel about engaging in financial conversations. I can share with you and you can share it with the listeners, a little exercise in order to be able to do that. Yeah. But basically, it's like, what is your money history around financial conversations? What is the easiest financial topic for you? What's the most difficult? You know, what's your fear about what's going to happen if you engage in these conversations? And mm. if you start to bring some of these automatic thoughts and beliefs to your conscious thought, then you can decide, well, which one of these is a strength, which is which one is maybe a roadblock for me. And then I really encourage partners, instead of jumping right into the numbers, talk about what did you learn growing up about engaging in financial conversations? What oh. makes it easy? What makes it hard? Which ones oh, would you rather not talk about? So you have all these conversations yeah. about talking about money and you're building up the muscle of engaging in these dialogues because financial conversations, sometimes they have dollars and cents in them, but a lot of times the part that trips people up is the emotions that they feel or what money represents. And so if you start there, I find not only can couples or partners, or you can do this with your kids and a family, is that they have fun with it as opposed to it turning into, well, you're not doing this and you're not doing that. Right. It, it, it is difficult. I definitely still get stomach aches when we sit down to have those conversations. I didn't grow up with very good mentoring from my mm -hmm. family around money. So it, I was well into my adulthood before I got there. Um, 
having said that, when do you start engaging your children in these money conversations and starting to give them some Mm -hmm. mentoring around finances? Great question. I think let's talk ideal and then let's talk reality. So ideally, it's like age five is when people become aware of money. Oh. of the fact that people are exchanging That's it, that so there's young. coins. I know at yeah. five to 15 is often when young people start to observe their parents, significant caregivers, and they start to form these thoughts and beliefs that I talked about, about money, the purpose of wealth, saving, spending, gifting, and investing. Now it all gets put in their mind and nobody talks about it. So we don't even know that that mindset really influences us as an adult. So the good news is you can change your mindset. So whatever you learned in your childhood, you get to decide if you're going to keep that going forward or not. But to get back to your original question, so ideally when you have little kids, you would talk about, oh, you know, this is a coin or allowance, like we're going to give you an allowance. And for a seven-year-old, you know, with the allowance, it might be you have one bucket for savings bucket. I'm old school, so I don't know what it would be now. Maybe we'll still call it like a jar. So savings, one for, um, you know, gifting and and one for um, spending money. And that, you know, at a seven-year-old, that would be like to get a treat, <laughs> like a candy. And then you move up those lessons as they get age appropriate. Now, that's ideally. Here's how it often happens. Something's going on in the family and we need to talk about money. It could be that you have a sibling that's disabled and there's a lot of money going to the sibling or there's something you have to sacrifice and that's a teachable moment. It could Mm. be that you're headed off to college or going into the workforce and that's a teachable moment. So what I encourage parents to do is instead of lecture, look for these teachable moments, these moments where first paycheck, usually, right? The aha is like, wow, I worked really hard and I didn't really bring that much home. So you talk about what are those things that are getting deducted? Oh, I have to just tell you, Kathleen, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but my daughter said to me, who is this guy, FICA? And why am I giving you my money? (laughs) I love that. I love that. Because, you know, I think she even said, I think she even said, FICA, who is this guy, FICA? (laughs) It was really hysterical. Yeah. And I, you know, the the other exercise that sometimes people will do, depending on uh, your situation is, you know, you can have your kids develop a budget for a vacation. And so what you do is you say, here's the money we're going to have for vacation. And whether that's $65 and you're going camping or whether that's, you know, more money and you're going somewhere else, they have to come up with a budget for how you're going to use that money. And so there's a lot of moments in there that you can have money conversations. What is most important is to not make what they decide or what they think right or wrong, but to try to understand where they're coming from. Granted, teaching good money skills is important, but we don't want to inadvertently make them feel ashamed. So Mm. for instance, say they mess up, say they do, you know, they go to the store and their budget for, I'll give you a real story, um, a budget to buy my mother's day gift. I think it was like 12. 
I went to the store. I had saved up all this money because I wanted to buy something for myself, but it was Mother's Day. So I went in and I bought this cassette player. It was $32. It was back in God knows when, the 70s. When we still had cassettes. (laughs) When we still had cassettes and cassettes were new, you know, it was a new thing. And so I saved all this money. It was like $32 and whatever cents I still remember. And I bought this cassette player for myself. And then I bought my mother a necklace that cost 50 Oh, dear. Where's the lesson there? Now, kudos to my parents. They didn't shame me. They didn't, they just, we had a conversation about, isn't this interesting? (laughs) Oh, I love that. Isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting? So you just kind of went and tell me a little bit about your thought process. And they did reinforce that they were proud of me for saving up and um, picking something that I wanted and not spontaneously buying. And then, you know, they had to work on my generosity. Yeah, <laughs> that's very cool. <laughs> so that's a good start. And we know that kids are not going to learn these lessons in school. It has to come from home, you know, and it has to be with our value system, right? Yes. And, and in schools, what's so frustrating, Annette, is that I forget the actual percent. It's like 14, 16 states. It's a very small number of states actually require financial literacy. Uh, but there's a move to make it more part of the curriculum. But I don't think we can allow, I don't think as parents or even like, I don't have kids, I, I'm a niece, I have nieces and nephews that I influenced. We really need to take it upon ourselves to mentor and to act as money mentors in this regard. Yeah. And what I loved about what you said a few minutes ago was that it doesn't matter the size of the budget. Mm-mm. You know, financial literacy or, you know, talking about money, it's not about only people who are in the 1%. It's for everybody, no matter how small or large your income and your budget is. It's important. And, you know, how, how does the conversation change, though, if you are living on a fixed income, like many of our disabled Mm -hmm. adults are, or even an elder, how does that conversation change? I think the main difference is when you are on a fixed budget, whatever your circumstances are, it is really about, you know, what's my spending plan, which I like to call a budget a spending plan. I feel like it's a little bit more empowering. Budget is kind of restrictive. So what's your spending plan? Uh, you know, do you have any disposable income? If so, you know, if you don't, then you have to meet ends meet. If so, what are you going to do to invest that to build that wealth? That could be a certificate of deposit, savings account. That could be a small investment account. So it, it's um, it's a little bit more concrete. What ends up happening if you have large amounts of wealth and you're parenting pe- kids or even middle America there ends up being more of a discussion around when you say no, it's not no, we don't have the money. It's no, because it's no. And so there's a complexity to that as well. So it's really hard to be on a fixed income. It's really hard to say no when you have the money and you just know you shouldn't give it to the kids. Now that's interesting, Kathleen. So it's it's complicated on, on every socioeconomic status. And we often assume it's not, but Mm -hmm. I, across the board, uh, coaching people. And the circumstances are just different. We all have struggles around money. And if somebody says, oh, I got this thing called money down, I never fully believe them (laughs) because it's complicated. Really? Yeah, because it's a a work in progress. There's ebbs and flows. And 
yeah. we're going to just work at it. You mentioned working with a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. How does somebody go about finding the right person for them? Great question, because there are a lot of financial advisors out there. And so what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to look for somebody who's a fiduciary. And a fiduciary basically means that they are representing your best interests. Uh, you should be able to ask them if they're a fiduciary and they're, they should be able to say yes. If they don't mm-hmm. say yes or start talking all over the place, chances are they're not. And it doesn't mean that they're not ethical. It just means that they're not always just looking out for your best interest. So I do want to work with someone who's a fiduciary. If you're somebody who is, you know, in an income bracket where it's more fixed, you have a little less to work with, I would encourage you to go to the local bank, talk to their wealth management person, because the beauty of a local financial institution like a community bank or credit union is that when you walk in the door and you want to talk to a financial advisor, they will meet you. They don't have any minimums. Uh, If you have more assets, you can still go to the local bank. I think it's a good option. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can also work with somebody who is a certified financial planner. And so we can put this in the links if you have show notes, but cfp.org, I believe. And you can do find an advisor. Now, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put myself in one or... I wouldn't put myself in one bucket or the other bucket. I might go to the bank, talk to the bank person who's working there. I might also go to the CFP um, referral site and get a couple names. And I think the key is interviewing the people and making sure, number one, you feel comfortable. Number two, that they're a fiduciary, meaning they're looking out for you, not just trying to make a commission off you. Mm -hmm. And that they're willing to take the time to answer your questions because anybody who's worth it is going to be you know, it could be a couple of times of answering your questions. If they're rushing you to buy a product, run out the door because there's way too many good financial advisors to have to, um, you know, fall into that kind of trap. That's really, really great advice. I know that, um, you know, I early on in my career uh, wanted to sit down and meet with somebody and they um, gave me a whole bunch of paperwork to fill out. Like that yep. was the first that was my first introduction was, you know, here, fill out all this paperwork. And it was really off-putting and mm-hmm. kind of challenging to get done when I had these two little kids at home and I was divorced and one of them had special needs and it was just, it wasn't going to get done. So realistically, I know everybody has their own style. I think it makes sense to meet with somebody who meets your style and your needs. You know, some people might like that. Some people are very tech minded and yep. they, they want to fill out all the paperwork. Like that's the relationship that they have with their advisors. And that's great. Um, so, but I do think it's different for everybody. Let me jump and- in just real quick. So there, so that's a very traditional way of operating. And there are people who still operate that, that way. And it's not good or bad, but it often is off-putting, especially to women, especially to next gen. So yes. part of the work that I do is I train financial advisors on how to be more female friendly, how to talk uh, to couples about money and how to make sure we're meeting busy moms like you were meeting their needs. And so often a younger financial planner someone who's in the 40 range, been in the field a couple of years, they're doing some really interesting stuff with online offerings, with getting to know you, online courses, really things that are quite interesting that meet you where you're at. 
And then there's also, you know, a movement to make sure that we're really servicing the needs of our clients and being human as financial advisors. And so again, it's really about the match. Once you go beyond like, is this person qualified from a competence standpoint, you should really over time like that person, feel comfortable with that person and not feel put off by them. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we say the same thing about your estate planner too. Oh, absolutely. I smiled. The audience can't see me, but I smiled when she said that, he, you know, being human piece, that's very interesting um, and real cool. There are a couple of things with financial advisors that can be a little confusing. So some people only work as, you know, a, an investment advisor. <laughs> Other people will do a, a solid financial plan for you. Some people charge and some people don't. Yeah. How do you know what's the right way to go? It, that is a great question because there's so much confusion. Now, again, I'm not a financial advisor, but I work with a ton. So I know all the different models. So what I would say is you want to look for somebody, and this is my bias, that does holistic financial planning. So what that means is they develop a financial plan with you. They may or may not invest money. Some do, some don't. But they also look at the estate planning piece. They look at uh, your debt. They look at your insurance. They look at the whole of it uh, because all of these components intertwine. And especially if you have a special needs child in the family, you're going to definitely want all of these pieces. And it's really great to have somebody who is an advisor that understands, and maybe they don't do it in-house, but works with an estate planner, works with sure. somebody who is insurance. So part of it is you find someone you can trust and often then they do the heavy lifting and finding these other people to be on your financial team. I call it your financial dream team. It's really great nice. to have a group of professionals out there that can support you. So you think of the financial advisor as the quarterback of the team? Yes. Yeah, typically. Um, and especially, you know, I'm a busy woman for maybe different reasons than you're a busy woman, but I just don't have time to be running around and finding all of these referrals. So right. it's really helpful if, and I have a financial team, it's a duo and they, it's a tax guy and a financial advisor. But when I ask them a question, they can hook me up with a mortgage person. Um, right. They can hook me up with an insurance person. I already had an estate planner, so I didn't need it. But that is really, really helpful. The other thing that a lot of professionals are doing that work with women and that work um, with the younger generation is offering non-traditional referrals as well. So if you have a business and you want a business coach or an executive coach, they might have someone for you to talk to. If you want to train your kids on financial literacy, they may have a camp or an online program or something that they can offer you. So, wow, I was just going to ask you about yeah. that. But yeah, that's great. Um, do you do you have an idea of when might be a good time to start talking to your adult kids? We call them the typical kids, you know, yeah. about the financing of your disabled child who's now an adult. When when's a good time? Do you think to bring them into the yep. conversation about how your disabled adult child is going to be funded for the rest of their lives. Yes. Yeah. 
Big conversation. I think first and foremost, if you've been having money conversations with them about everything, you know, building up to this, it becomes an easier conversation. Mm-hmm. In terms of the age, there's no right age. I get asked this a lot in different contexts. There's no one right age because it'd be really great if there, you know, it was like 18 and three quarters. What yeah. you need to think about is developmentally um, for, I guess, the typical kid, you want to be like, where are they at? What's their financial literacy level? And let me think about, are they ready to at least initially have these conversations? And so if you have a good financial advisor, you can have that person help you with that. If you don't, it may be just starting with, you know, there are some different finances that we face because your sibling has special needs. And, you know, at some point we're going to be talking about that. And I just want to make you aware of that. Do you have any questions? So it can start with a very simple, this is something that we're going to deal with. It doesn't have to start with, oh, this is the estate plan and this is the special needs trust that we set up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to jump into all of that right away. Kathleen, I love that idea of just, you know, kind of asking them that open-ended question of, you know, what are they thinking about it? What questions do they have? That's great. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, it's very simple. And the other thing is, is as parents or as people who are, you know, older, we may have all sorts of thoughts that we're thinking they think and that we need to tell them this. And I find that people are pretty good, especially younger people of being able to say, oh, no, this is what I was thinking about it. And so Mm -hmm. you're opening the door. The other thing is, you know, I think the challenging part may be they may have feelings about it, you know, and and it may take them some time to be able to express their feelings, the more difficult Mm -hmm. ones. Uh, whether that's resentment, whether that's I really you know love my brother or sister, but this is really hard, yeah. or they may not have any of that. But having a space for that can be useful. So it's important to think about how do we just broach that stuff when it comes up. And then I would say, you know, by the time if you've worked with an estate planner and you've talked with that person about the special needs trust, they right. can get a sense of maybe it's time to bring you know, the young, the, the other siblings in to have these conversations. So many of these uh, siblings are going to be our Gen Zers. Yeah. And we talked about Gen X and millennials, but what, how are the Gen Zers dealing with money? And what's their psychology? I'm really interested to yeah. ask. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of articles about this lately. Have you? Uh, So, so there's a couple of things. A lot of the research that I've seen has not just addressed Gen Z's, it's addressed more millennials and younger millennials, but Gen Z is kind of falling, uh, you know, falling in line with that. So often the younger generations are, I mean, obviously they're very digital savvy. Mm -hmm. They very much are interested in aligning their values with their money. So having a values conversation, you know, we, we value taking care of your brother or sister, we value education, whatever you value, and here's how we're planning and using money in that way, asking them about their values. I think the good news about, and this is a millennial stat, but the good news about the next generation is that 71% of millennials surveyed said talking about money openly and honestly would make us a healthier society. And I thought, yes. Wow. <laughs> so they may not have a roadmap to do it. They may not do it perfectly. But I really think as we move on and with Gen Z's, uh, same thing, that, that we're going to break through this taboo. 
And so you don't have to feel that money shame if you've made a financial mistake. I mean, who hasn't? They think so differently about work and income and, you know, pursuing their life's dreams and things that interest them. And man, the women of this generation are so admirable. I mean, if I had half of their guts, (laughs) you know, when I was that age, I would have been thrilled. Um, I think that they are tackling everything with such gusto. Uh, I, I, I think that? so. And, you know, I definitely think so. There's a greater number of women are negotiating their salaries. I recently did a women's ERG for a STEM company. So that's, you know, science and technology. And I asked these women who were all Gen Z's and millennials, like what their biggest concerns were. And I was surprised. It was like cryptocurrency, my stock options, you know, <laughs> <laughs> There's market volatility. And I thought to myself, when I was in my mid 20s, I was thinking like, you know, how do I buy the new pair of shoes? I know I should save some money. So it was totally different. I mean, I think that there's been definitely a shift in the positive. Uh, I still think we have a ways to go, but I, I do. I have a lot of hope for the next generation. And, you know, with everything going on in the world, you know, there's some roadblocks that they have. Yeah. But in terms of, asking and getting paid what they're worth. I feel like, you know, at least the young women are feeling like I'm entitled to that as opposed to some of the women that I coach that are more um, Gen Xers and boomers are more like, is it okay if I ask that? Uh, I I think there's definitely been a shift. It's like you've had that conversation with me. Um. (laughs) (laughs) And myself, Annette. Well, um, I have loved this conversation. This is so great. I just want to ask you if there's any last parting tips that you want to leave our audience with for today. Sure. Uh, You know, if you want to start a money conversation and you want help doing it in a very simple way, I have a resource for you that gives you a tip a week on how to creatively start a money conversation. So you just go to, I think it's called 52... Money Talk Tips by KBK. And basically what that is, is you get a short little idea in your inbox. Don't worry. If you like it, try it. If you don't, delete it. And then the next week you'll get another one. So people can sign up at breakingmoneysilence.com because I think, you know, my is dare to have a money conversation. You can use these prompts and think about starting with somebody who is safe. That's my other tip. Don't start with the most conflictual conversation (laughs) You know, your aging parent trying to get them in a nursing home. Start with, oh, you know, my kid asked for allowance and I'm not sure I want to Like you're reading my mind. (laughs) So so start small. Um, Certainly get some help with these money talk tips and uh, keep it simple and just keep building that muscle because I really believe money conversations get easier over time, but it's like anything. You have to build up that muscle. You have to practice. Um, and you know, if anybody needs support or they want to check out my podcast on other ideas, they can go to breakingmoneysilence.com as well. That's where everything is. That's awesome. And we're going to have all of this contact information in the show notes and we will have in the show notes where people can sign up for their money talk tips. That's awesome. Awesome. I'm going to be doing that. I hope so. I I loved writing them. (laughs) You know, it's already been a year. So now I'm at the end and I'm like, oh, I think I have to come up with a whole another year of tips. 
oh, wow, you're not just going to repeat them? Because, no. you know, if somebody starts in the middle of the year, they wouldn't have gotten all of them, right? Like, I love that know. idea. That's See, that's why we talk to each other and learn from each other. I never even thought, oh, I could just repeat them. Yeah, because, you know, not everybody started back at the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Kathleen, KBK, it is so awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. We are all the better for it. That's very sweet. And that is fun breaking money silence for you. Thanks for the opportunity. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.